Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our usual Thursday time slot this week, a little after 10 a.m. on March 8th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Good morning. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello. And we are pleased to welcome to our table our newest addition to the podcast cast, Anna Edney, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Hi. Thanks for letting me join. Good morning, ladies. Um, today, we are 15 days away from the next congressional deadline to keep the government open. This is supposed to be the big, quote, omnibus bill that will fund the government for the rest of this fiscal year and next year, too, I think. It's also supposed to be the vehicle for bills to stabilize the individual insurance market, those things we've been talking about since last September. Um, They were also the bills that Senator Susan Collins of Maine got Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to promise a vote for when she agreed to vote for the tax bill in December. But it doesn't seem like anything is coming together, at least not yet. Where are we? Anybody? It's a mess. This, this, the, the spending deal that came out a few weeks ago was for two years. This is just for the rest of the fiscal year. So we have to do this all over again. As soon as we, whenever we finish this, we'll have to start the next one. Awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, Labor H, the labor health, uh, the, the one that has all the stuff that we talk about, <laughs> is all, it's the culture war bill. So um, in addition to being a lot of money, it's, you know, it's all these social policies. It's women's health. It's Obamacare. It's, you know, stem cells in the past held it up. I don't think that's, oh, there's some fetal cell research in it. This and time. the gun violence research. Gun right, yeah. there so, too. so I mean, if anything that people are screaming about outside, they're screaming about on this this particular piece of legislation. And if anything holds up a deal by the twenty third, it's going to be Labor H. Could it come together the night before? Could they put in some you know non binding language that reflects the majority of views but doesn't actually commit to any? I mean, they're they're we've all seen them work. Eventually, they always have to work things out or shut down the government or they shut down the government and then work things out. So eventually there'll be some kind of deal, whether we see it by March 23rd with all the things that the House Republicans are floating right now about everything I just mentioned. It does not look like an easy task for the lawmakers involved. Margaret, you looked like you were about to say something. Oh, I was just going to talk about the stabilization piece, yes, which feels... So yeah, there's, so, there's, so, yeah, we should point out that, So as, as I said, there's... There's the, all there's, this policy stuff right, that there's is the spending very part, Including the ACA. Right, right. There's the spending bill part, and then there's the part that they want to... The stabilization stuff that they want to put on the spending bill. So I, I would just divide the stabilization part into two separate categories. One has to do with the cost-sharing reductions, which are these payments that go to insurance companies to help them... Uh, help compensate them for lowering cost sharing sort of co-payments and deductibles for poor Obamacare enrollees. And, you know, we've talked about them a lot. Uh, the Trump administration took them away. And there was this resetting of the market that happened as insurance regulators and insurers decided that they could kind of just load all the extra cost associated with them on certain plans while uh, keeping the price of other plans relatively modest. And the market has sort of adjusted around that. So there is still some energy on the Hill behind funding the cost sharing reductions. And in fact, there is some interest by the White House in doing that as well, because it will cost the federal government less money. Uh, But the urgency of that effort feels less. It just seems more and more that Democrats and health policy experts think this has been a weird adjustment, but it's better to have stability around the current 
way of things, which actually increases the generosity of tax credits for a lot of middle class people than to go you know, temporarily fund this, have the whole system reset itself a second time and then have it expire at some future date. Then there's a discussion around reinsurance. And I think that feels a little bit more interesting and more robust. So reinsurance is when the government essentially bails out the insurer for very high cost patients. So if you imagine a patient who has uh, medical bills that exceed, say, $100,000 a year, uh, if the insurer has to pay for all of those excess costs, they're going to have to spread the cost of that on all of their customers. And those customers tend to, those really, really high cost patients tend to be sort of rare and unexpected. And so if the federal government essentially agrees to cover those excess costs, it will allow the insurers to have more predictability about how much it's going to cost to take care of people and it could lower premiums for everyone. That's the idea. There was reinsurance in Obamacare in its early years. There is reinsurance in the Medicare Part D program. And there are a couple of states that have, through these state innovation waivers, been able to get reinsurance programs approved uh, for their states. And generally, like although it hasn't been easy, even the states that wanted to do that, it took took the only one that went through completely was Alaska. Alaska, Minnesota, Minnesota Minnesota. got part of it. They didn't get the basic health piece they needed. And I'm not even sure they went ahead with it because they couldn't. They got they got it was a two part waiver and they got only one of them and at last I checked it was sort of on hold it may have they may have moved forward since then. I think they didn't get exactly what they wanted but they did move forward that's my recollection and did Maine get it I think Maine was was thinking about it I don't, I don't think, think it went through it and Oklahoma yeah. pulled, uh, it was the thing was Oklahoma that withdrew this because they didn't get it fast enough so yeah. I think that of the four that had been applied I think we have one and a half approved the one <laughs> and two thirds approved well and speaking of Maine I mean this is Susan Collins's issue right Senator Collins this is what she was promised would get a vote um, and so whether that still is going to happen I think she sort of has a lot riding on that um, and the 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 CSRs that you mentioned Margot were so important for so long but it's an election year uh, for midterms too and so when you're talking about doing those those are the opposite of reinsurance their effect on premiums given the situation you talked about so I don't I don't think I think that's part of the urgency going away too is that premiums uh, if those were to pass, could actually go up as a result. And what's the point of doing that right now? And yet now? we had this really odd um, estimate from the Office of Management Budget this week that suggested, you know, I just I just wrote a story about this. And the, the consensus, as Margot was saying, is that CSRs, mostly the, the market has sort of adjusted around them, but reinsurance is likely to actually lower premiums. And, and OMB came out and said exactly the opposite, that CSRs would lower premiums, but reinsurance wouldn't. And I'm like, huh? I, I don't know whether they're trying to throw a wrench into it or I. it well, just there, seemed sort of a, a strange a proposal from the White House that Politico broke and reported on uh, that seemed to suggest that the White House is like not very excited about any sort of deal uh, with these components happening. So they in in this document, they said that they would like the cost sharing reductions, but they want all of these other uh, basically politically untenable things attached to them. And and you know, and that's you, part of what Joanne was referring to. Yeah, I just think when you read Including that, on the ACA, right? I mean, it's not just it's not just abortion and fetal cell tissue and so forth. It's also for everything that Democrats want to stabilize. Republicans want something. They Democrats would call it destabilizing. Republicans would say, you know, broadening consumer choice. But it's non-compliant. It, it's what what the White House is looking for 
for is, according to that memo, which, you know, may change by tomorrow. But as of then, they were looking for a lot more of these short-term plans that would let With people... guaranteed renewability. Right, so that they're not short-term. So <laughs> they're, basically they're right, right, into, right. right into law what the administration proposed in regulation last year. More, because it yeah. lets them be pretty much guaranteed issue each year. I think, and, the, I think yeah. the way of reading that memo is not as a serious negotiating ploy that, you know, the White House wants to get the stabilization bill right and they're trying to, like, work out the various pieces. I think that the way I read that is they're signaling to Congress, we just don't want you to make a deal on this at all. <laughs> Until they do. I mean, it's two weeks. It was, what, 14, 15 days 15 away? Days. In this administration, that's like 90 years. So, <laughs> you know, we'll see 40 different, you know, we've seen this. We've seen the White House come out with more than one position on, you know, the fair, Alexander fair. Murray bill in one day. And also, it's not clear we, exactly, we a, like, yeah. how influential the White House's position minute, is right. on this. Or, you know, they're, 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 they're sort of, you know, embroiled in steel tariffs, and, you know, tomorrow it'll be a different thing. But, or, you know, the steel tariff, the intersection of steel tariffs and pornography seems to be the, the issue at the White House today. So, you know, what, are they going to go back to Obamacare premium stabilization? That might seem really tempting to them by tomorrow. So, you know, I don't know where. Well, it's, it's funny. If you were on Capitol Hill and you were in the middle of a scandal, they would love to go back to this sort of thing. But right. that's kind of not the way this White House I, rolls. I, don't, I mean, we saw that memo and we know that that is part of the conversation right now. We also know that you're negotiating to something that you don't have to. The deadline's still two weeks away. So all of all, they don't really seem to be very enthusiastic about stabilization about uh, about the the, um, the the risk corridors and the and there's also a court ruling on the risk corridors. This whole this whole stabilization of the premiums and reinsurance and all that. I mean, the, the Obama administration, excuse me, the Trump administration is not crazy about that from what we know. The politics of reinsurance, I think, are interesting because on the one hand, it definitely requires new spending. It's basically the federal government saying, you know, we're going to pay some portion of these medical claims for high cost patients, you know, which they're rare and it's not that many, but it actually requires direct appropriation of money in order to do it. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's considered to cost more than it would save on tax credits. Um, But on the other hand, it is if you kind of think about it in a sideways way, it is sort of similar to risk pools. They're high, the high they're risk high pools, risk pools which, which is, yeah, that is sort of a preferred mechanism for a lot of Republicans for dealing with people who have pre-existing conditions. So rather than having, you know, uh, everyone buy the exact same thing, they feel like, well, why don't we just like help take care of these sicker people and that will help lower premiums. And I, I do think that there is an interest by both parties in lowering premiums. For... Particularly because it's we're in an election yeah, year. I mean, it's like and, these right. prices are going to come out like just before, before the, the election. Elections. And I think there's like various ways that you'll be able to spin them about, you know, there are these other premiums over here, these short term plan premiums that are lower. But I think in general, uh, you know, politicians have gotten used to the kind of silver benchmark premium increase being the most newsworthy premium increase. And, you know, reinsurance certainly is some way to try to push that down a little bit. But it's really that's really hard to explain to a voter. You know, like what looks what what the political dialogue revolves around the sticker price. And even if many people aren't paying the sticker price, there's two issues. There's there there's it's just easier to understand, right? You look at, you you see a headline saying premiums rose forty percent, it's way easier for a politician to yell about that. Um, you know, whether it's a Democrat challenger saying, oh, this happened because the Republicans were in power and they, they made things worse, or whether it's a Republican saying, you need to let us, you know, this is still Obama's fault and the Democrats' fault, you need to elect me to help fix this. 
it, it's way easier to say, you know, 45, whatever the number turns out to be than it is to say, well, that's the sticker price and you don't have to really worry about it because of a benchmark silver plan. Yeah, the Obama administration was always trying to do that. it's only the individual market, so it's like 40% yeah, yeah. of the people who are individual, mar- individual, you know, you're talking about eight or nine million people, which is, you're still talking about eight or nine million people, but there's 330 million people in the United States. Right. So it's but not, then, so, yeah, there's but, this feeling that, you know, when premiums go up, that it's everybody's premium going up. Well, because ours are going up too, but that's, <laughs> that's different. different. <laughs> um, so, I mean, do the Republicans, does everybody, does every incumbent have a certain amount of vested interest in preventing this huge uh, sticker shock in November? Yes. Is that why they might do this? Maybe. But it, it is because you but have so political many. political risks, too. You there know, are. It's often it's branded as an insurer bailout. It requires new spending. And even you know, notwithstanding the large deficit increases that have recently passed in Congress, I think there is a desire by some Republicans in Congress to not just spend money and increase the deficit at every uh, stage of the game. And so, Unless they're tax cuts. <laughs> Uh, so, I, I mean, I don't know. I really don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't feel terribly optimistic about either the cost sharing reduction or the um, reinsurance being part of this package. But I think it's a little early to know. All right. Well, let, I want to move on. Um, the, we, we saw this was a, a big conference week here in Washington. We saw some some big uh, interest group conferences. And for I think the first time in this new administration, we saw a lot of members of the administration out making speeches. In one week. Uh, in one week. HHS yeah. Secretary Alex Azar spoke to, to a hospital group uh, on Monday, spoke to the uh, insurers today. FDA uh, Chief Scott Gottlieb had some strong words uh, for the drug industry also at the at the insurers conference and Seema Verma the CMS administrator who you almost she speaks almost as little as Jared Kushner actually showed up in Arkansas with Jared Kushner and we'll talk about the Arkansas work requirement in a minute but you know here are her is the secretary and and two sort of main people and and they were all pretty strong speeches um and there I, I saw you know kind of quite a spirited argument on Twitter is what they're saying about getting serious about doing something about healthcare costs real, or is it just we're surprised because we haven't seen them, with the exception of Scott Gottlieb, who has been pretty outspoken, we haven't seen that much out of the Department of Health and Human Services, and suddenly we're seeing a lot of at least words. What it felt like to me was just like the department is waking up again. You know, Azar is installed. He's start. He's putting his deputies in place. He's starting to have an agenda, and now they're, he's sort of deputizing everyone to go out and spread what that is. I think whether or not this agenda stands for something dramatically different, whether or not this is going to be a very different kind of HHS is really going to depend on more than just their words. But it has felt like, you know, since Tom Price left, and even really before, he was sort of embattled for a while, it just felt like the policy wheels were kind of spinning. You know, Scott Gottlieb was did feel like he was doing a lot over at FDA, but there was this legislative fight about Obamacare, legislative fight about other healthcare things, but it didn't feel like the kind of regulatory muscles of HHS were really getting exercised. And I wonder now if we're seeing uh, the beginning of a new era of like actual policymaking in healthcare in the Trump administration. I I think, too, you saw this week, um, you know, them figuring out what their buckets sort of were going to be. Um, now you know, that their buckets are lo- no longer getting rid of the ACA, right? Exactly. They're so that they, so they're moving on to to what are their the policies they want to pursue. And and you saw Secretary Azar talk about value based care, which has been this buzzword for a very long time. Um, but he's you know trying to to actually make something happen, or at least he says he's going to. Um, we'll see what comes of that. But then you know you saw. Uh, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, he's sticking with this drug pricing issue. Um, And the stuff he talked about yesterday 
was more um, in the in the realm of rebates, the way that uh, drugs are paid for. And that's not something the FDA normally talks about. He's really been focused on drug pricing on generic drugs. And Although approving generic drugs is something the FDA definitely. does. So. so that that's been his thing for a long time. But now that Alex Azar is here, it kind of looks like Scott Gottlieb's been handed the drug pricing issue, whether it really he you know, he'll find a way to make it fit into the FDA mission, but he's going to talk about many different ways of dealing with it. I was I was surprised actually. I, I think of of the speeches this week. I thought that Scott Gottlieb's was kind of the the most sort of threatening to the audience he was talking to. I um, think Azar's was somewhat reassuring to the audiences he's talked to. I mean, not that they liked every word he said, but I, I mean, he he's went basically to the hospitals and told them like you're not going to be able to continue your business the way that you've been doing it. But, the, but, that, but that's con- yeah. they know that, right? I mean, that's con- that, in some ways that was more continuity. I mean, are the are the payment reforms and the macro and the you know advanced payment models are they going to look the same under Azar's they looked under Sylvia Burwell? No, but is it basically moving in sort but of... I think under they Price, sure looked, they yeah, felt say, reassured. Exactly. I they think sure some did and some price. didn't. I think some felt that they had spent years investing in certain systems that Price was going to blow up and that Azar is going to modify. And I, so I think in some ways it was... Remember, the, it's not just all coming from the government. The insurers and the hospitals are already doing some of this stuff. The change resistors didn't like it. Some of them have spent a huge amount of money and a huge amount of energy and a huge amount of consulting fees <laughs> on... Um, you know, and moving in some of these directions, and, and we know it's uneven, and we know that even those that have sort of a veneer of innovation have a lot of old-fashioned fee-for-service underneath. But th- there had been, I mean, if, if if it took us decades to get into the problematic way that fee-for-service evolved, we're not going to get out of it in two days or two years. It's, it's you know, it's going to take a long time. So I thought, yes, it was sort of a tough talk, but in some ways it was also a reassuring talk. Gottlieb yesterday, he has been talking about drug prices, I mean, but not as bluntly. He was tougher, but he's, he went and talked to the insurers who hate the drug companies. It's not like he went to pharma and gave that speech. It just, I felt the optics were a little different. I felt like Azar went to the hospitals and said, like, I'm, lo- I'm looking at you. And I think Gottlieb went to a friendlier audience and said, like, we're going to go beat up on pharma a little bit. No, I, think said, oh, no. talking, I think Gottlieb was talking about the insurers no. yeah, and, yeah, the, yeah, and the pharmacy about the benefit insurers managers. Yeah, um, he it said actually, you're taking this money instead yeah. of passing it on, and it's complete. Yeah. He called it kabuki. <laughs> it's kabuki letting, drug contracts. It's actually letting drug makers off the hook a little bit, which is something we've seen from this administration, despite some very tough early words from President Trump himself. You know, the drug makers have actually, no one's said to them, hey, you're pricing these too high, bring it down. Instead, you know, Gottlieb yesterday blamed contracts that insurers make with these pharmacy benefit managers. We call them middlemen who help negotiate discounts, basically, in the form of rebates for these drugs. So he he definitely was uh, being pretty unfriendly to his audience, um, I think, and, and actually more friendly to pharma in that instance. Yeah, I thought so. Too. Well, I, well, well, since you're bringing it up, Anna, we have a little bit of breaking news. Uh, insurance company Cigna announced it's buying prescription drug manager Express Scripts. Um, this obviously isn't the first one of these. I guess it's an acquisition and not a merger uh, in the insurance drug management space. Um, how big a deal is this one? Well, this is basically the um, it's a continuation of a theme that we you know assumed was sort of coming because the um, you know the other there are big three big players in this pharmacy benefit 
manager space. And um, the other two, one's already been with an insurer under United Health. The other one, there was another acquisition. Um, and so this looked like... Well, Caremark belongs to CVS, right? Well, CVS. Yeah. Um, and then they, um, they're they merging with Aetna, an, an insurer, um, as well. So the... Or they're trying to. Um, so and then Express Scripts and, and Cigna. Now we have that. So it's basically the idea... It gets to what Gottlieb was talking about. There are these incentives um, that might be keeping some drug prices high when you have those two entities separate. Um, Bringing them together might be able to basically start lowering costs. Um, And in this case, you know, maybe for the insurers to and to do the same for patients down the road. There's two there's two levels of talking about drug prices. One is just drug prices, period, what they cost. Two is what the patient pays. So there's a lot of. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about reducing the what what you know the the copays or the the patient burden. How do you how do you for people who have expensive diseases or they have the disease isn't expensive but the drugs are. Um, so there's there's that conversation, and then there's this larger conversation about the underlying cost of drugs. Forget how do you divide it up? Just what do they cost? So you know what Gottlieb was talking about is it's so convoluted. And I thought he did call everybody out. I mean, he he basically said. The prices are too high, and when you negotiate deals, you're pocketing them to the insurers and the PBMs. You're pocketing the right. discounts, right? So, he, you know, he and that's where he ended up with Kabuki. I mean, it was a very, it was he has been talking about prices because his his whole he approval, talked about it here on the podcast, right? I mean, his whole he's been very transparent. He's been very out there. I think he's surprised a lot of people. Democrats don't yell about him very much. They may not agree with everything he says and does, and I'm sure they will find fault with him over the however long he stays in this position. But he has generated some goodwill because he's been out there and he's been frank and he's talked he is he was very blunt yesterday so um but i also think the accumulation i mean verma was also at hims which is this huge um the, uh, the big digital IT conference right. yeah um and she talked about um some shaking things up there too in a way about access to data so she had a she had her moment as well but i so i you know i just think that the tone is different you know we don't know the small print of any of these things yet azer's only been in a month Five wait whatever it is, but you know, we we didn't hear this much out of Pricer, the acting secretary, in a year as we have in this past ten days. And, and what do we, Margaret? What do we think about consolidation in general? I mean, there, you know, there's this. There's sometimes you think, oh, well, this might might actually help consumers. It might sort of you know bring more efficiencies and bring costs down. But there's also that concern that that you know you basically have this medical arms race where you have you know consolidation among providers and consolidation among insurers, and they're battering head to head, and nobody's actually saving any money. So I think there's different kinds of consolidation, the sort of classic kind of mergers, which we are seeing a lot of right now, like where one hospital group buys another hospital group. I think the economics literature is really clear on what happens, that generally what happens when those mergers happen, particularly if the hospitals are nearby to one another, is that prices rise, that, you know, those hospitals essentially can then name their prices to insurers and we all end up paying more for that. You know, sometimes there are reasons why it should happen anyway. And there are antitrust rules that, you know, they have to jump through various hoops in order to do it. So if it's going to be really egregious, they probably don't get approved. Uh, There is, I think, somewhat persuasive but a little bit weaker evidence about what happens when insurers buy other insurers that suggest that also prices do tend to go up. Um, These kind of mergers that we're seeing now, both with the CVS Caremark merging with Aetna and now potentially with Cigna buying Express Scripts, I think are a little bit different because they're more sort of vertical mergers. They're, you know, insurance companies, as Anna said, typically have hired these 
pharmacy benefit managers, these middlemen, to help them handle the drug part of their business. And they haven't done that in-house. They've hired these other companies. And now what we're seeing is that the largest insurers are essentially buying the middlemen. In theory, that could be good because if there, you know, there's a lot of complaints that this industry is not transparent, that they're pocketing their discounts, that, uh, you know, that it's weird that they're kind of segmented in this way, and that really maybe health insurance would work better if the health insurer can control not just the nitty gritty of the hospital and doctors' parts of their business, but the drug part also. So there could be some advantages for the insurers that have acquired these companies in managing their benefits a little bit better. But I think there are some downsides too because now. If you are not uh, United, Cigna, or Aetna, you do not own a giant PBM, which is a, was a very consolidated industry. Those three PBMs essentially represented a very large percentage of all pharmacy benefit management. Um, and you know you don't first of all don't have access to that kind of coordination, and you essentially have to do business with one of your competitors. So if you're a small, say you're like a small upstart. Uh, insurer and you're kind of breaking into an Obamacare market, you know, you want to... Um, you're Oscar. Yeah, if you're Oscar, say, right? <laughs> like, now your options for how you manage your pharmacy benefits are kind of limited. You have to go to someone that you're essentially competing against on your core business in order to purchase these pharmacy benefits. And like, you know, are they going to give as good a deal to the outsiders they give to their own company? Mm, I don't know. And Oscar is, of course, not going to have the benefit of doing that kind of integration. So I think it's it's really hard to know what the effects of these are. There are some smaller players in the PBM industry who continue to exist, and maybe they will become more popular among these remaining insurers who are not uh, part of these big merged conglomerates. I think it's also possible that maybe PBMs, just as an industry, are going to become less important. Maybe insurers will start developing these capacities inside their own shops and just say, you know... You mean like they used to? (laughs) Yeah, like they used to. I mean, that's sort of... It is a return to the way things used to be. The PBM is a relatively new entity. And I heard a really interesting story about the state of Arkansas for their state employee benefit plan. They just had a really rough time with their with their PBM, and they just fired them, and they hired the uh, some people from the pharmacy school to help them build their own PBM. And now, like the state of Arkansas health plan, like does its own drug benefits. I wonder if maybe the result of some of these mergers is we're going to see more action like that among these insurers that are left standing outside. And then we'll see if it actually does anything. To and, drug well, I think prices. also everybody's. I mean, no one knows, but everybody's wondering what's Amazon going to do in this space because yeah. that's something they're all supposed. to supposedly defending themselves against the possibility. But remember that the insurers were blocked from merging with each other by the courts, I think it was one year ago. Um, you know, the it was what, Aetna and Humana and Cigna and Anthem, was that yeah, it? Yeah, I think that was um, it. And the courts <laughs> said, no, we're, we're consolidated enough. There were two very long trials, and they both said, you know, this isn't going to happen. So this is a second approach at consolidation. And at the same time, you have... Um, we're talking about consolidation in two different ways. There's good consolidation, which we don't use the word consolida- consolidation. We call it integration. So the, the uh, you know, cannibal care organizations and all these, a lot of these new delivery systems are supposedly breaking down barriers and having these groups work together in new ways. Critics of that say, it's, I don't see an ACO, I see a monopoly. So you know, we have this sort of good efficiency, get out the waste, be creative about how you deliver care and pay for it track and then you have just plain old fashioned you know monopolies developing track and they overlap and we haven't figured that out um so and then you know we have different federal agencies regulating different you know the insurers are regulated by one and the hospitals by another i think that many people do see danger in more inflation of prices when they get bigger because 
they just do. <laughs> yeah, and it's not, you know, it's not an optional, healthcare is not an optional thing for, you know, people and companies and state governments to buy. You have to buy healthcare. And if, you know, you if it, if you can only deal with basically one entity, they can basically set the price. Well, while we, while we were talking about our Arkansas, I will point out that Arkansas became the third state this week to have work requirements approved for Medicaid recipients, uh, although it appears they may be the first to get them up and running. Now we're seeing states that didn't even expand Medicaid start to talk about work requirements. That means that they don't have these quote-unquote able-bodied people necessarily in their Medicaid programs. The only sort of non-disabled adults they have are parents. Um, how would that work? If- I have a spreadsheet going uh, because it's really hard to keep track of this. So I have like one column. How many have submitted their uh, waiver request? And then I have another one, like how many governors have said out loud or put in an executive order or has there been a piece of legislation to try to move this along? And it is a large number of states and it includes a handful, like maybe four or five states that currently do not offer Medicaid benefits to child, poor childless adults, the kind of Medicaid expansion population. Uh, I think it's just this is going to be a big change for Medicaid. It seems very clear from what CMS has done so far that they are excited to approve these waivers. Uh, you know, Arkansas, their work requirement was not just approved, but Seema Verma went there to, uh, to you know, to it. hand deliver it, to give a speech about it. She was proud that she was hand delivering it. She, they took questions. I mean, it was a it just it just seems clear that this is a policy priority for CMS to try to get a lot of these experiments about work requirements out there into the world. And so I think it's reasonable to think we're going to see many, many more states pursuing these. I have no idea what it means to have, for example, a state like Maine, uh, which has proposed this, have a work requirement where basically they don't cover anyone who would be eligible for it. But we've talked about work requirements before. And I, I think what it really comes down to is that work requirements are about two things. I think they're about the actual work requirement and whether it's going to encourage people to work, whether it's going to improve people's health, some of the arguments that advocates make for it. But I think it's also really symbolic. It's just a way of kind of signaling to the public that this is a program that you have to earn and that there aren't going to be a bunch of free riders on it. And in some ways, that symbolism becomes most clear in the places where there's almost no one who's going to be subject to the requirement. And then there's the other category of of there are two states that have not expanded Medicaid where they now have, excuse me, Democratic governors who would like to. And as they negotiate with their Republican legislatures, this is North Carolina, Virginia, um, Medicaid, uh, the work rules could be part of a compromise to go ahead and do the expansion with that model. Um, the other interesting thing about Arkansas, though, they didn't get a ruling on the other part of their waiver, which was to uh, currently, Medicaid expansion under the ACA is up to 138 percent of poverty. Right, because they had a Democratic governor. <laughs> they, they, um, some states had wanted to do it only to 100 percent of poverty, the poverty line, um, not just over the line. Which is not was not an option in the Affordable Care Act. The administration, the prior administration, said no. Arkansas made another run at it. CMS didn't say one way or the other. That's on the back. I don't know how back the burner is. If it's like a little bit back, and we'll hear in a week, or if it's gonna, you know simmer for a while, but that was not addressed. So I thought that was interesting that they didn't address it. Also, That's another Arcan- example yeah. of a policy that would set off just a tidal wave of change in the Medicaid program. Now, I think there are arguments on either side of it, it's, it's, uh, but... The people be- could get in the there exchanges. Are, there so are not, not, uninsured, not right? just red states, but blue states are, I think, would be very interested in the idea of expanding Medicaid only to the poverty line. And the reason is, is because once you hit the poverty line, you're eligible for subsidies in the exchange. And here's the key thing. 
the subsidies in the exchange are paid, every single dollar of those subsidies are paid by the federal government. The Medicaid expansion dollars are paid uh, eventually, ten percent of those dollars are going to come from state budgets. Yeah, so state, your choice is hundred percent or ninety yeah, percent. State budgets would say, you know, states even even blue states would prefer to pay zero than to pay ten percent. And so, if they feel like they have like a pretty good exchange and there are going to be options for that population, uh, Massachusetts has also asked to uh, reduce its expansion down to a hundred, kind of shift those people into the marketplaces. So this this, this decision about whether or not Arkansas will get this thing approved, I think, is pretty important. Uh, there's some. Legal questions about it, but it will it will definitely if it gets approved, it will have effects across the country. And of course, Arkansas, remember, had this weird hybrid model where they took those people, sort of between one hundred and one hundred and thirty eight percent, and they bought them into the exchange plans. Medicaid dollars, right? They used Medicaid dollars to put them in the exchanges. I mean, it um, certainly would be easiest to make this transition in Arkansas relative to other states because people would be basically in the exact same plans. They would probably just be paying a little bit more premium. Yeah. They'd have a different benefit structure. But, it, I mean, in Arkansas, they wouldn't, but other plan, right. other states right. going in. Yeah, in Arkansas, they're model, already they in were, exchange right, plans. It, it would change. And, but a lot of the liberals who were really skeptical of Arkansas a few years ago um, ended up looking at the particular model and the, the, the providers and, you know, just how reality was in, in, in Arkansas. And, and they, that these people, as their incomes yeah. change, wouldn't have to keep there's changing a lot plans. Of tra- you know, there's, there's, access, there's, there's the benefits of Medicaid, but there's access issues that in some places are better in the exchange. That's probably, that may have diminished somewhat because the exchange networks have narrowed. Um, there's this thing called, you know, what we call churn, which is people who are really close to the poverty line. They go in and out of eligible. You know, this month you're eligible for this. Then you make, you know, four more dollars and you're eligible for that. And so it does, there's more stability for some of them. So that, I don't, I think that Democrats have learned to live with some of what Arkansas did. They wouldn't, they wouldn't favor it in every state. I, I, I think that they ended up being able to live with it in Arkansas. One more thing about Arkansas that I think is just important context. Arkansas had one of the most successful Medicaid expansions of any state in the country. They had one of the largest reductions in their uninsured rate of any state in the country. And that is also true of Kentucky, another state that just had a work requirement approved. And so it does feel like a little bit of whiplash to me that these states that just really went all in on Obamacare – on the Obamacare Medicaid expansion, I should say, and really had a lot of poor uninsured people that they were able to get into the program. I think now what we're seeing is a little bit of like, oh, my God, this is this program's been totally changed. Our state is totally different. The politics, um, you know, the political leadership in those states have changed. And we're starting to see some pushing back in the direction of let's go a little bit closer to the way things used to be. Well, in Kentucky, it was political whiplash. You went from Steve Bashir, who was one of the Democrats who was most all in on Obamacare, to Bevin, who I think I'm pronouncing it right. It's Bevin, right? Um, who ran on dismantling it. So you really had a uh, an ideological. There's, there's been a transition in Arkansas but, too, but from Bevin ne- to Hutchinson, who yeah, was but, always but I think Hutchinson he, never really tried to just totally. Yeah, he didn't shut run on door. it the way he Bevin did. Well, did. he sort of did. He he. In the election, he said that he was going to roll it back. Then, as soon as he got into office, he he's got a little bit. More he got. He got. He's yeah. been much more moderate. I think completely eliminating the Medicaid expansion would have been untenable in Arkansas, just given the overall politics. There were a lot of Republicans in the state legislature who had voted for it several times at that point. But you know, he's trying to find a way, and I think now he's trying to find a way to make it more conservative. And you know, these changes potentially could mean that substantially fewer people are covered under that program. I don't know if he's been more moderate. Maybe the word is more pragmatic on it. Um, <laughs> 
the, the, he, but it wasn't a defining issue for him the way it was it in was Kentucky. Better, it was yeah, really like, yeah. I, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get rid of Obamacare. That wasn't the dynamic. And uh, in, in, in Arkansas, it was more like, you know, I'm going to look at it and figure out how to make it more of a Republican but, program. But I think Margot's right. In Arkansas, it was much more when they were doing it because it they had right. this unique experiment. It was mu- they, And they have a rule with what, with three quarters? You need three yeah, quarters yeah, of the, the legislature. The much more involved. Yeah. Yes, Which because is, it was I part of the budget. Which SEMA went there this year is to give a little cover. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to table our Title X discussion for next week because I think we've used up enough time. Uh, and we're going to go to our uh, extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a story that they read recently they think everyone else should read, too. We will post the links to all of these pieces on the podcast's page at khn.org. Who wants to go first? Uh, Joanne. There was a piece in the New York Times, uh, I believe it was Sunday, at least I read it Sunday. It was titled, A Bright Light Dimmed in the Shadows of Homelessness. It was a really long-moving story about a... Um, what they called her a bright light, this, you know, really dynamic young woman who developed mental illness and spent her life basically living on subway grates and things like that in New York City and died there in her 40s. Um, And the quote, and, you know, she wouldn't acknowledge how sick she was. She wouldn't, she wouldn't take help from, she would take, you know, a meal, but she really wouldn't go to a shelter. She wouldn't take treatment. Um, and I think the quote, and, and friends of hers stayed in touch for many years trying to help her. And I think the quote that really stood with me, stuck with me was, um, this was from a college professor for, who, who had um, stayed in touch with her for many years or tried to. And the quote was, somehow she was always holding on to all of us, but she wouldn't let us hold on to her. Margot. I wanted to talk about an article in Vox.com from Ellen Nilsson called America's Opioid Crisis Has Become a, quote, Epidemic of Epidemics. And what she what she pointed out, which I think is sort of useful, is that obviously there are many, many people who are dying because of opioid overdoses. And that's a reason that we should care about the opioid epidemic. But it is also true that, you know, chronic injection drug use is associated with a lot of other health problems. And we're seeing a proliferation of those problems, too. And I just think she did a nice job of pointing out how dealing with the opioid crisis is going to be largely about drug treatment and prevention, but it's also going to be about treating these other conditions that people get as a result of drug use. And the two she focused on are hepatitis C and endocarditis, which is this infection that gets to people's hearts, very, very expensive to treat. And uh, a lot of healthcare providers are trying to wrestle with how do they uh, address these problems? How do they address people's addiction at the same time that they're addressing these other health problems so they don't just recur? Anna? The article um, I was looking at was from, it's a New York Times ProPublica collaboration called The Price They Pay. And we were just talking about how complicated this whole drug pricing debate is. And I think it really distills um, with some very clear examples of, of people who are, you know, what the issue is and or what the issues are, because there are many different angles to this. Um, but, you know, showing someone who has many different conditions and how they're juggling trying to pay for trying to pay for some of these medications and how you know some of these medications it's not just that the drug makers are setting a price and it's too high it's that maybe they've been on something for they've been on a diabetes treatment for years and years and years the treatment's not different but the price is going up and up and what are the reasons behind that and there's some great explanations in here um, after you meet the people and you hear their stories of the policy that um, requires this to that's why it is the way that it is so I think it's a great understanding basically of the whole debate 
Well, I also have a drug price story this week. Uh, It's from my KHN colleague, Jenny Gold. It's called Miracle of Hemophilia Drugs Comes at a Steep Price. Uh, It's a good story, and you should really read it or listen to it. It was also a radio piece. But I wanted to highlight one particular paragraph where Jenny tried to get one of the firms to tell her exactly why these drugs are so astronomically expensive. And the answer was, and I quote from the story, the company begins by talking to insurers, doctors, and patients to get a sense of what value its products bring to the market, especially compared to drugs already available. Bayer, the drug company in question, then sets a price based on both its investment and the product's perceived worth. In the end, he said, we're charging a price that's competitive with the other factor products on the market. This is the the blood factor used for hemophilia. And all that basically translates to, we will charge as much as we can because this stuff is keeping patients alive and everyone else is charging that much too, which is kind of in a nutshell how the competitive market is not working when it comes to drugs. Um, Anyway, it's a really good piece. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kinnon. At Sanger Katz. At Anna Edney. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.